Did you know that 2019 marks the 50th anniversary of Woodstock? There's going to be a 50th anniversary celebration in August in Watkins Glen, New York, and you can see a list of the many famous artists who will be playing there on a Woodstock Facebook page. The original Woodstock Music Festival was a defining moment for those of us in the baby boom generation. It highlighted the emerging counterculture and uh, the whole thing of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. There were also anti-war and environmental themes. I was only in junior high at the time, so I just heard about Woodstock on the news, and I remember seeing the rather shocking pictures featured in Time magazine. We all got to hear some of the featured music on the radio from the festival headliners, including Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, and Joe Cocker. Crosby, Stills, and Nash performed the emblematic song titled Woodstock, and that major hit was then featured on their 1970 LP, Deja Vu. The song Woodstock was actually written by the Canadian artist Joni Mitchell. Joni's always been one of my favorites because she combines creative music with profound poetry. And her lyrics certainly spoke to our generation's concern and our search for identity. If you haven't heard the song in a while, or if you've never heard it, you should really give it a listen. You can hear both Joni's version and the Crosby, Stills, and Nash version on YouTube. The song spoke of meeting a child of God who is walking along the road, going down to Yasker's farm to join in a rock and roll band and to camp out on the land to get his soul free. It talked about going there to lose the smog and about feeling like a cog in something turning. The war illusion was, I dreamed I saw the bombers riding shotgun in the sky, turning into butterflies above our nation. Joni even made what sounds like a climate change reference with the line, we are stardust, billion-year-old carbon. So, you may be wondering, how is Steve going to connect this bit of pop culture with agriculture? Well, that comes from the chorus of the Woodstock song that ended with the line, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. That desire to get back to nature was maybe one of the better instincts from that era, and it still resonates today. There are many ways to pursue the goal of getting in touch with nature, but I think Joni was right on with the whole garden thing. We may not have gotten to rock out with the hippies at Yasker's farm, but there are lots of benefits if we do get ourselves back to the garden, and that's what I'll explore on today's podcast. Now, gardening is a pursuit that goes back a long time before Woodstock. After all, that was supposed to be Adam and Eve's job in the Garden of Eden in the ancient Genesis narrative. And for millennia, people grew a lot of their own food, not just those who were full-time farmers. I had a happy introduction to the joys of gardening, courtesy of my beloved grandfather. He was a World War I vet who took seriously the World War II-era challenge to grow a victory garden to support the war effort. So from my early childhood, I got to help Grandpa in his garden, and I'm sure those memories are part of why I've always gardened in the various places that I and my family have lived over the years. It's not like many people in the rich world today need to garden to eat. We have the privilege of a remarkable, diverse, tasty, and affordable food supply. I've observed the steady improvement of the store-available food since the days of Woodstock, particularly when it comes to fresh produce options, whole grains, and other healthy choices. But there are still a lot of great reasons to garden. 
Today, it's popular to talk about urban farming. I'd argue that that is essentially still gardening. I'd rather reserve the title of farmer for someone who grows things and that's a significant part of their income. But whether it's called urban farming or gardening, it's still a good thing. I believe there are a lot of good reasons to grow things, whether that involves a sizable part of a suburban yard or just some pots on an apartment or condo balcony. So here's a sort of clickbait kind of title for today's segment. Seven great reasons to get ourselves back to the garden. Reason one. Gardening can be a nice break from our indoor lives. I'm sure that a lot of my listeners are like me and that our day-to-day work involves a lot of time sitting at a desk and looking at a screen. It's great to have a change of pace, to get outside to enjoy the sun, get our hands dirty, and maybe do a little physical work. I'm lucky enough to work from home, so I can use the time in the garden as a sanity break. Number two, there's satisfaction in doing it yourself. It's fun to be able to say, I grew this. Your garden's production doesn't have to make a big contribution to your food supply, but you still get that pleasure. For instance, we will probably never grow our own wheat for bread or many other staple foods, but that doesn't diminish uh, the fun of what we can produce. Number three, gardening is an excellent opportunity to teach kids about where food comes from. As our society becomes ever more urbanized, we have generations of kids who have no experience other than seeing food bought from stores or restaurants. And that's not a great thing for many reasons, but it's really fun to see the wonder that a child can experience when they actually watch something grow and then enjoy eating it. Again, this upside doesn't require that you're growing a lot of the diet. It's just that the kids can see how food is grown and maybe get their hands a little dirty helping you in the garden. My kids enjoyed helping, and now I sometimes get to provide that perspective for my grandkids, who are growing up in a very urban London. For the text version of this segment, there is one of my all-time favorite pictures that shows the expression on the face of my then four-year-old granddaughter when she picked her very first apple. Now, my little backyard apple tree was no great specimen, which I can partially excuse by the fact that apples aren't very well adapted to Southern California. Still, it was worth growing that tree if only to give her that one particular childhood experience. Number four, gardening allows us to have something special to share with others. One experience that gardening teaches us is that when you grow things, you sometimes end up with way more than you can handle or consume. You might be able to deal with that by canning or drying or freezing. I remember that Grandpa always seemed to have lots to share with us, and he was such a serious gardener that he provided a lot for his neighbors. Now, if you've ever grown zucchini squash, you may have had those times when the crop grows way faster than you even want or need to work into your meals. Grandpa used to joke that during peak zucchini season, he would put a bag of the squash at the neighbor's door, ring the doorbell, and slip away so they couldn't turn it down. I never had to do that. But I definitely had times when I wasn't keeping up with the squash harvest and some became three-foot-long pool toys for my kids. We used to have a fig tree in the yard, and when those became ripe, we had far more than we could eat. But we had many friends and family members who, who loved figs and were thrilled to get those. Number five. A garden can be a way to get certain treats that aren't generally available to buy. Now, as I said earlier, food choices that are available in modern U.S. grocery stores are remarkable. There's a whole pop agriculture podcast about that topic titled An Apple a Day. 
But even so, there are many really interesting and tasty crops that are either too delicate to make it to the store or not known well enough to represent a market. A garden can provide some real treats of that nature. For instance, I like to grow beets, specifically for the leafy tops. That particular option isn't all that available in great condition in the store. And recently, I found a local nursery that specializes in tropical plants, and I bought a lychee tree and a dragon fruit tree. And I'm spoiled enough to live in a frost-free location where those specimens might just survive in my care and provide some options that, at least for now, rarely show up in stores. I also like to grow some lettuce plants and then harvest it by the leaf, just enough for the salad that night so that it's super fresh. Now, bag salad is definitely a nice option in stores today, but it's fun to be able to supplement my salad. Until it gets too warm, the lettuce goes to seed and gets very bitter. Wherever you live, you might check with the local master gardener groups to see what backyard specialties you might be able to grow in your region. Number six. A garden can give you options to do something green with unavoidable food waste. If you consume a lot of fresh produce, there are parts that have to be trimmed off, husked, or peeled. Now, if your local waste treatment plant does anaerobic digestion, the greenest thing you can do would be to send it to them down the disposal. But what you really don't want to do is send something like this plant waste into a landfill. As a gardener, you can have a worm box or maybe a small compost pile to recycle these materials. If nothing else, you can just bury it in the garden to let it decay and return to the soil. For instance, I like to fertilize things in my garden with my coffee grounds. Number seven, gardening can help us better appreciate what farmers do for the rest of us. I've left what I consider to be the best reason to garden until last. In the modern developed world, only a tiny subset of our population is directly involved in food production. While that is great because it allows most of us to pursue other fulfilling vocations, it separates us as consumers from the realities faced by those who do produce food. Even worse, we can drift into a sort of armchair quarterback stance in our thinking about how we think farmers should do their job. It doesn't help that farmers are often the subject of seriously unfair and misleading narratives in the press and in the agendas of certain activist groups or on social media. As a non-farmer who got to spend my career with some connection to farmers, I got into blogging and other things originally because I was so troubled by the misinformation out there about who farmers are, what they do, and what they care about. Now, I would encourage people to participate in some kind of farm tour or agritourism to get themselves a somewhat more balanced view. But if you can't go to a farm yourself, gardening is a remedy for this sort of possible blind spot and can give you a bit more perspective on the many challenges of growing food. Lots of things can go wrong in the life of a food crop, and if you garden, you're likely to experience at least some of these challenges, just without the potentially catastrophic economic effects faced by farmers. There can be damaging weather events like hail, frost, heat waves, or drought, and those will show a gardener just how delicate a plant might be versus the ravages of nature. The other harsh reality of nature that a gardener is likely to experience has to do with pests. You might have the only local specimen of some kind of plant in your garden, but it's amazing how specific insects and diseases can find your crop and mess it up. If you go to your local garden supply store, you can get some products to help you safely manage these pests. 
There's certainly not as many advanced options as are available to farmers or others who have the appropriate certifications based on extensive training, but there are options that will work for you. You might want to check and see if there's any local pest control guidance available to you through a master gardeners group or maybe your state cooperative extension agents. One thing I really wish I could buy for my garden would be GMO sweet corn. Now, there's usually nice sweet corn available in stores, but it'd be fun to grow. And this is a crop that can be grown just about anywhere in the U.S., at least sometime during the year. Also, my grandpa used to grow sweet corn back in the days when you really had to cook it almost immediately after picking to keep it from going all starchy. Breeding advances have turned sweet corn into a store-ready crop, but I like to grow it for nostalgic purposes, thinking back to the days when grandpa would say, get the water boiling and then I'll pick some corn. Now, there are some nasty worms that eat their way into the ears of corn from the tassel end, and it's really gross to start husking the corn and where instead of finding nice kernels, you, you find a wriggling caterpillar in its frass, e.g. bug poop. Farmers, including organic farmers, have been spraying a biocontrol bacterium called Bt since well before Woodstock. But for that to work, you have to reapply it every few days. Sweet corn hybrids exist that have been engineered to make their own Bt protein, so they might never need to be sprayed for these worms. That elegant and environmentally friendly option has been almost completely denied to farmers and to gardeners because of anti-GMO phobia and the related brand protectionism in food retail. I really wish that wasn't the case, more for the farmers than for me and other gardeners. Sometimes, however, I do see some great pest management options available to consumer gardeners. For instance, I've purchased tomato plants at the local nursery which were grafted onto pest-resistant rootstocks. Often the heirloom tomato varieties that we gardeners like to grow are really wimpy when it comes to dealing with soil-borne diseases and nematodes. But if they're on a robust, resistant rootstock, they'll do much better. Now, a gardener can accept a much higher level of cosmetic pest damage on their own produce than they would probably accept from the store. But seeing what pests can do to a plant is a good education, and hopefully something generates some perspective about what farmers have to deal with as they manage pest challenges on a much larger scale. A gardener might sometimes get by without any real pest issue, particularly on a quickly growing crop. The same is true when farmers get lucky in a given season. Still, a gardener is likely to get a dose of reality about the fact that nature includes many organisms that like to compete with us for the crops and food that we need to produce or somebody needs to produce for us. So whether you want to go to the 50th anniversary version of Woodstock this summer or not, there are still a lot of good reasons to want to get ourselves back to the garden. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.